And if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 24 and squeeze in. We got folks in the back. If there's some empty seats, uh, I guess toward the middle, move close. We'll squeeze in so more people can get seats and come in. You guys all look so pretty today. Wow. I kind of feel like we're at a wedding. Is there anybody here this morning who wants to get married? Like, could we just do that? Come on up. Think of the money you would save just on mere invitations. All right. Hey, we already got the coffee. We'll send somebody out for danishes and cake. Okay. Let me ask you a question before we get started. If I had the ability this morning to give to you a couple of things, uh, what would you do with them? If I was able this morning to give you, let's say, hope, but not just any hope, if I was able to take all the hope that this world could muster and I could jam it into some kind of form that could fit inside of you, and I gave that to you. So, like, you were like the hope monster of the world, you know? And then I was able to give you riches, like beyond the scope of what you could comprehend to spend in your lifetime. Don't play this game with my middle son, because he swears that's impossible. He could spend it all by tonight. But this is a riches that exceeds your ability to spend it. You can't outspend this riches, okay? And then on top of the hope and on top of the riches, I gave you power. And it's a power that's unprecedented that no one person anywhere in the history of the universe has ever had this kind of power. I gave those three things to you right now. Would it change your plans for the afternoon? Like, seriously, I want you to close your eyes just for a minute. Okay, oh wait, I knew this was going to happen. I was going to go to church and they would make me do something I don't want to do. No, just, I want you to imagine, what would you do with those three things? What would you do with those three things? Okay, I'm, now I'm going to make you do something that's going to be hard. I want you to get out of your crazy imagination and go with me on a journey. Because it's Easter Sunday, and uh, you know we're going to turn to Luke chapter 24. And you may be a little disappointed because there's nothing in this passage about like stones rolling away or, you know, dead people coming to life or like angels that look like lightning. I mean, some of you are going to be really disappointed because there's no singing Christmas tree in this passage or an Easter bunny. But I think it helps us on this Easter morning to see a picture of what is going on here in this room right now. And this is Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 13. So we're going to start. Uh, who's got a page number from the House Bible? 735, if you got one of the Bibles from the back. If you don't have a Bible from the back and you don't have a Bible at all, feel free to get up and go grab one. We won't point and laugh. And, um, and if you don't have a Bible that you can write in, scribble on, or underline, get one of ours and consider it yours now. Verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, let's stop there because what he's talking about is there are two disciples of Jesus. Jesus had been crucified three days later. They didn't know what was going on. And now they're packing up their bags. They're leaving Jerusalem where they'd come for the Passover. 
as thousands of other people had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, they were packing their bags and they were heading home and they lived in Emmaus, which is about seven miles away. And you can kind of get this sense, or I want to bring you into this sense, and it's kind of this idea that, well, the show's over. <laughs> you know, that Jesus thing had its run, and we had a lot of expectation, but now it's over, and now it's time to go home and clean out the house and find out if anybody's been feeding the cat, or, you know, it's time to get back to normal life. You know, and uh, I remember a number of years ago, believe it or not, uh, I used to ride in rodeos. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, rode bulls for many, many years. And uh, we were at the State Fair Rodeo, and they were having a drawing for a big screen TV. And they drew my dad's ticket. And I was like, yes! This is back when big screen TVs weighed like 3,000 pounds, and you needed, you know, forklifts to bring them in the house. And we were excited. And so they were, the way they were doing it was they were bringing the winner from last night and the winner tonight, and they bring them out into the middle of the arena, and then they draw one of those two to win the big screen TV. And I'm like, I can already imagine, you know, sitting in front of that TV and it just lighting up and illuminating our entire house. And it was going through my mind, and uh, my dad lost. I was like, Dad, how could you lose? You had like a 50-50 chance. And I can tell you that coming that close to the victorious life of a big screen TV— and going home to our 24-inch TV, that was the most depressing drive I think we ever had. Because there's nothing worse than getting close to something that you think is going to make your life spectacular, only for it to be taken away from you. So their big TV, big screen TV had been taken away from them. Modern day translation. Verse 14. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. All right, I don't know if any of you laugh when you read that. I burst out laughing when I was in my office, all right? Jesus himself came up and walked with them, but it gets better. But they were kept from recognizing him. Like, did he like have a fake mustache on or something? I mean... Seriously, did he have a wig? Like, did he say to the angels, yeah, give me that, and then give me that? And I, we don't know. I mean, I like to think Jesus had a sense of humor. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? In other words, what's going on? Hey, guys, what's happening? They stood still, their, face, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Listen, I mean, it's, I don't know about you, but let's go on this road. The road to Emmaus is often a road that is full of sarcasm. In other words, what he's looking at him, he says, where have you been? Like, what, what is your deal? You really haven't heard what's been going on. See, discouragement, doesn't discouragement or being downcast, or being disappointed, doesn't it have a way of tainting the words that come out of our mouth? Doesn't deep discouragement have a way of how we even give words to other people? Let's keep going. What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They're crushed. Their hope is gone. All their expectations are thrown out the window now. Now, true, their image of what it meant for Jesus to redeem Israel is they thought he was going to be a political leader that was going to lead this massive movement that was going to set them free from their captivity under the Roman Empire. And in Jesus' new kingdom, the new Israel, you can just imagine what these disciples began to think about their role in this new Israel. You know, man, am, am I going to sit in a seat of power? Am I going to rule over people? Am I going to be wealthy? This new state where God's going to bless us, he's going to crush our enemies and make us strong. I'm in on that. And then Jesus died. Let's keep going. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. That was code. What he's saying is, Jesus promised. And like everybody else, he didn't deliver. In addition, some of our women amazed us. Underline amazed. Because they went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Okay, they were amazed. The tomb was empty. Okay, some said that they saw him alive, and yet they are downcast and traveling to Emmaus. (laughs) Isn't it true that when we get discouraged, even good news sounds like bad news? You just won the lottery. Oh, great. Just one more thing I have to do tomorrow. (laughs) Isn't it true? They were downcast. They were sad. They were discouraged. Everything they hoped for was over. They were full of sarcasm. Their hope was crushed. And even good news sounded bad to them. Let's just stop because it, I have to tell you that I relate all too easily to this, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus because it's easy for me to get so discouraged, so downcast, so sarcastic, so hope is gone, so even good news is bad news, when things in my life that I expected to go a certain way don't go that way. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find it very easy for me to create expectations in my mind of how life should work out. And if life doesn't work out that way, I get so discouraged, or I get beat down, or I get downcast. I mean, think about it. What are all the expectations that we have about relationships? And when relationships don't work out that way, isn't it easy to become discouraged, overwhelmed? Or how about the relationships that we thought we were going to have at this stage in our life, and we don't have those relationships in our life? (laughs) You know, and it's crazy. Those are kind of heavy things. But I don't need heavy things to discourage me. We were at the beach last year, and uh, we were packing up. We'd had a week of rest. I mean, it was awesome, you know, just sunshine and breeze, and now it was time to go home. And I was already calculating, you know, on my Google Maps how long it was going to take me to get from Destin to my back door of my house. And I'd already committed myself to what? We are going to set a record time. For some reason, there was a number in my head that I thought if we could reach that, then certainly we would step into nirvana. <laughs> Just like, and if you beat your old time, like, like if you blow it away, it's like, that's stupid. That's just, you're just good for a week. But even if a minute, you're like, yes. And so I'm lecturing everybody. We're not stopping for anything, you know? And I got the bottle in the back and, you know, I, some of you know what that is. 
I'm not going to explain that, all right? Because if you don't know what that is, then you know what? You haven't traveled with me yet, all right? So we're driving, and I get this text. We're cruising. I mean, we're like, you know, I'm not speeding because that's sin, right? Uh, but we were going pretty good, all right? Because isn't 10 over the speed limit not speed? Uh, that's okay. That's another sermon. So we're cruising, and we're making great time. And a friend of mine who was down there, too, had, uh, had left earlier that morning. And I get a text from him, and I, yip, beep. I'm like, I can't wait. You know, what has he got for me? He's probably, you know, we're comparing. I'm going to beat you, man. You know, my time's going to And I look, and he goes, detour, giant sinkhole on interstate. Okay. So we had to detour on back roads through the entire state of Alabama. Oh. We, it took us three and a half extra hours to get home that day. I was miserable, and I was good for nothing, because what I had expected was now blown away. It was destroyed, and it was such a stupid thing. I can tell you it doesn't take much. I can go to Baja Burrito with all on my mind, fruit tea, fruit tea, fruit tea, fruit tea. Walk in, and it can be empty, and I can walk out and say, forget it. I don't want to eat anything. I mean, it's so easy to be discouraged when life doesn't work out like you want it to. And that's small stuff. What about when somebody cheats you? What about when somebody says, I'm your friend, and it turns out they're not? What about when your life plan takes a detour when it comes to your health? What about when you don't get into that school or you don't get that grade that you wanted? What happens when you find that the person that you're married to has more struggles than you ever thought possible for one person, and now you're married to them? What happens if you have kids and they're not athletic and you had expectations that they were going to make it in the NFL by the time they were 13? <laughs> because parents don't have any expectations for their children. No parents are laughing at that. Of course we have expectations and they will live up to those expectations. Yes, they will. You will receive this discipline, and you will thank me for it. <laughs> what about when it gets even worse, and my life becomes the road to Emmaus? I mean, how could it get worse? What if emotionally I feel like that my life is out of control? I didn't plan on being depressed. That's not the life plan that I imagined for myself when I was a young kid dreaming about what my life was going to be like. I never realized that adults struggled with so much self-doubt. Because when I was a kid, everybody seemed to have it so much together. But internally, there's like tapes playing all the time in my head telling me what I'm not. Or telling me what I should be. Or what I ought to be. Right? Did you ever grow up and you're shocked at the ability that your mind has to create shoulds for you? You should be getting up this morning and going for a 20-mile run. You should look better. You should act better. You should be making more. You should be. You should be. You should be. And those shoulds become burdens that come on our back to where it just downcast us. And we become massively disappointed with ourselves. How do you live with that? 
It's not just that life seems to have cheated me. It's not just that there are people in my life that have seemed to have cheated me. Have you ever looked in the mirror and go, dude, you cheated me? For example, have you had any failures in your life that you look back and say, what was I thinking? Any moral failures that you look back or addictions that you let creep into your life and now they got a hold on you and they won't let go? See, when you're on the road to Emmaus, here's what, the que- here's what comes out of our mouth. What do we do? What do we do now? Because what do we do is a question that says, I need a plan. I can fix this. I just need to find out what to do next. One of my kids, I won't embarrass them by telling you which, but when they were two years old, uh, and they were learning how to... Uh, do the whole potty thing. Uh, I was downstairs. Renee was gone, and I was working on the car, and I had the expectation that Renee's gone, I'm babysitting, and I'm going to show her that it's possible to get stuff done and watch the kids at the same time because men are good at that kind of stuff. So my child says, potty. I'm like, you're two. Go do it. So I'm you know, working on the car, and he's not back 10 minutes later. I'm like, well, parents, let me tell you something. Dads, if you're babysitting your child and you haven't seen them in 15 minutes, you probably ought to go looking for them. <laughs> Just make a note to self, you know, that's probably the time. And I go up, and I find that he has missed the pot. He was successful in the movement that he was seeking to achieve, <laughs> but he had missed the pot. <laughs> And he had taken it upon himself to clean it up himself. (laughs) Yes. It was like finger paint all over the bathroom, all over him, all over everything. And I walk in, and he looks at me and goes, aren't you proud? (laughs) I not only, well, I won't go into detail to spare him, but... That's what it's like when I'm on the road to Emmaus and I decide I can't take this anymore. This isn't what I wanted. And my discouragement turns into action and I'm going to fix it. In fact, what we do is we just make a bigger mess. And it smells. (laughs) Well, let's keep going through the story because here are these discouraged disciples and Jesus sneaks up on them. I mean, I don't know about you. Come on, Jesus is sneaking up on people, disguised. I mean, that's in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. He did that. And I've got to tell you that personally, it troubles me to think of a living Jesus sneaking around, sneaking up on people. Because I'm going to tell you straight up, it's almost easier for us this morning to get our hands around a dead Jesus. If Jesus never came out of the grave, guess what? then I can make him anything I want to make him. If Jesus is still in the grave, then I can basically go to Emmaus and say, I'm going to build my own religion, and I'm going to decide what to believe, and I'm going to decide what I'm going to live my life by. I'm going to decide my own morality. I'm going to decide what truth is. I am going to make myself the barometer by which I measure everything that's good and bad. Because if Jesus is dead then it's all about me now. So now I can choose what kind of morality I'm going to live when it comes to my sexuality. 
I can choose that. Hey, Jesus is still in the grave, right? I can choose how I'm going to view what money should be used for. I'm going to choose what I'm going to do with my career. I'm going to choose how I'm going to treat people. I'm going to choose everything about my life. And here's what's beautiful. If Jesus is still in the grave, he's just a great teacher. So now I can go through this and I can handpick the things that I like and the things that I don't like. Well, they just don't make the cut. I can just do whatever I want because Jesus is still in the grave. But you understand that if Jesus is not only alive, but he's sneaking around, sneaking up on people, I mean, that's a whole different thing. It's the difference between somebody calling you and saying, hey, did you hear that people have been breaking into houses in our neighborhood? And you're like, oh, okay, all right. And you know, because you don't. And waking up in the middle of the night, somebody's standing in the foot of your bed. You see the differences? Like, one is, I can deal with that information. I'll lock the door. The other is, dear God, somebody's here right now. Where's my gun? My taser? I don't know. Where are my kids? Throw you poopy at them, you know, or something. I don't want to be Mr. Obvious, but there's something that we've got to draw out of this text, all right? It's this. If Jesus is sneaking up on people, Guess what it means? He's alive. We can't get past this. Because it means everything. If Jesus is alive, if he had the power to do that nobody else had the power to do. I remember when I was a kid, the first funeral I went to was Papa, my granddad's. And for some reason, like, I don't, still don't understand this. Maybe somebody here runs a funeral home. Help us understand. They brought me in and made me go up and look at him. Like he's laying there, dead. Imagine how that story would change if he would have jumped out of the coffin and said, I'm back! <laughs> Woo! What are we eating? It would have changed everything. And see, if we're going to grasp the story today, Jesus is saying, nothing is greater than me. Not even death. Everything is subservient to me. What does that mean? See, I can tell you all day long. If I told you right now, hey, uh, I've been kind of holding back on you guys. There's something you don't know about me. I can fly. I don't know what superhero strength you would want. I think flying would be mine. You would laugh and you would say, you know, dude, you're losing everything. You're going crazy. But if I started to elevate here and start around the room, then you would stop and say, you're not insane. Actually, something is going on here. Jesus said a lot of things. Let me share with you just a few of them. Because every one of these things that he said, he punctuated with his resurrection. When he rose again, he said, see, I told you it's true. See, I told you it's true. One of the things he said, he said, I am the bread of life. Listen to how outrageous this sounds if he would not have risen from the dead. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hungry, hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. He also said, I'm the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We're not going to hunger. We're not going to thirst. We're not going to walk in darkness. He even said, guess this, he's not of this world. Imagine your friend telling you that. Psst, hey, I'm not of this world. 
nanu, nanu, you know, I don't know. Jesus said this stuff. I mean, I'm just trying to get you into, do you see how outrageous this is? Can you mean, you're sitting around a campfire with him, you know? You're a disciple. You don't even have internet, you know? And he goes, hey guys, I'm not of this world. He says, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Don't tell anybody. Then he lit this fire. He said, I am. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What was he doing? He was calling himself God. That's the name that God gave Abraham. This is who I am. I am. Then he went on to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he shall live. So not only are you not of this world, not only are you saying you're God, not only are you saying I'm never going to hunger, not only are you saying I'm always going to walk in the light and not walk in darkness, now you're saying that when I die, I shall live. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow, get your hands around that. In the culture that we live in now, that is offensive. That Jesus would stand up and say, I am the only way to the Father. That's it, just me. Jesus said, if you have known me, you have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. You've seen the father because you've seen me. Then he says something outrageous to Pilate. Like, if that's not enough. He says to Pilate, he, Pilate said, are you a king? And he said, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then finally, he tells the woman at the well, the woman who had so many moral failures, who you want to talk about a life that's lived on the road to Emmaus, this was this woman. And she is the first person that he clearly said, I am the Messiah. So here's this Jesus whose resurrection says, guess what? Everything I said is true. Boom, he is alive. And he's sneaking around on roads like Emmaus. And what is he doing there? Well, he's starting a fire. Kind of like William Wallace. You know, where are you going, William? Where is he going? Yeah, some of y'all need to watch more movies, all right? To pick a fight, you know? He knew his agenda. Jesus was starting a fire. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. (laughs) I love this. Jesus, you know, him and his fake mustache, and they're all downcast. And he looks at them and he goes, you guys are such fools. Why would he say that? Because he said, let me teach you. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly. Your translation may say they begged him, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went to stay with them. 
And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened Scripture to us? What was Jesus doing on that road? Jesus was starting a fire. Their hearts were burning within them because Jesus was not just telling his story, starting all the way back to Moses and the prophets. He was telling their story. He was telling our story. And, you know, when you think about this, why, was Je- why didn't Jesus just pull off whatever he was wearing or change his appearance so that they could see him right away and celebrate? Why did he choose the word to set their hearts afire? You know, in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and He tabernacled among us. Jesus is the living Word. And even in Hebrews chapter 4, it says that the Word of God is active and alive and sharper than a double-edged sword. He is showing us that this is a way that God works to set not just those two disciples' hearts on fire, but our hearts as well. God uses His Word. What's remarkable about that is that some of you who have been Christ followers for a long time would say, man, I've just kind of grown cold in my faith, you know. I'm just, you know, I'm just not there, you know, you're not burning hard. Yeah, that was years ago. I, I would recommend that maybe it's because the Word doesn't have any power and authority in your life anymore. That you're not opening up the Word expecting that God speaks through this by the power of His Holy Spirit. And so we belittle this book and we turn it into books of do's and don'ts. And so we open it up, and instead of reading our story here, we read a disappointed father that says, well, are you going to do something good today? You know? Instead of expecting God to set us on fire, even in the Old Testament. I want to encourage you that if the Word has no place in your life, you need to fight to find that place for the Word in your life, to become a student of it, to understand it, to be taught from it, and have it speak to your own heart. Starting next Sunday... We have a group of guys here that are going to be taking us through on Sunday evenings a series on Christ in the Old Testament. If you've never studied that, I would encourage you to put that on your calendar and say, I'm going to commit three weeks to doing that. What was Jesus saying to them? Come to the class and you'll hear these guys tell you about that. So what does this living word tell us? Jesus was going around raising dead people. It's kind of like, okay, this is going to be an obscure movie reference, but hang with me. I don't know which Star Trek movie it was, but they had gone uh, back in time and, uh, to capture a whale. Did, does anybody know which movie? Four. All right, four. Because whales save the earth. And uh, they're walking through a hospital in Bones, who is the uh, doctor on the Star Trek uh, Star, well, Enterprise. All right. He's walking to this hospital, and, there, and he's passing people that are sick, and he's got his, his little, you know, little, little gadgets and stuff. And he's just healing people as he's going, to, what? You're healed, you know? And they're getting up, and they're just like, and Captain Kirk, good thing our God is not, you know, as benevolent as Captain Kirk because he pulled bones away because he could have spent all day in the hospital fixing everybody. They're so barbaric, you know, and he's a Star Trek man, and he's healing people. Well, Jesus is walking through this world, not just healing people. He's raising dead people. He's raising them to life. Seriously, in Romans chapter 6, 
It talks about it very clearly, that we died with Christ on the cross. That on the cross, Jesus took all our sins. And when he took all our sins on the cross, he threw them as far as the east is from the west. That Jesus took our punishment for our failures, for the things that we've done that God said don't do, and the things that we left undone that God said do. All those ways that we've messed up, God took that to the cross. And in exchange for that, he gave us his righteousness. We're all cleaned up. You know, but that's only half the story. It's crazy. It's kind of like, I don't know if any of you ever got Easter outfits growing up. Yes? Anybody get an Easter outfit? Did, okay, for the rest of you that felt that it was inappropriate for you to raise your hand just then because your parents shamed you because they made you wear stuff that you would never normally wear in your life and then took pictures of it and they're hanging on your parents' walls at home, all right? My mom had one desire on Easter morning, to dress all of her boys, three boys, like girls, and then take us all to church. I mean, we were wearing pinks and all kinds of stuff, you know, and our hair was combed. And here was what she would say. She would get in the car, and she'd look at us, and she'd go, do not mess up what I have done. You will leave that hat on. You will leave your shoes on. You're not playing in the yard. You're not doing anything. Get in the car. Sit perfectly still. Don't untuck your shirt until we get to church and I get you to Sunday school class. It's not until everybody in this church sees what a marvelous mother I am. Then you can do whatever you want, all right? Is that Christianity? Where God says, I saved you. I took your sins away. I cleaned you up. Look, I gave you new clothes. Now don't mess it up. Go out there and do something good now. No, something much more marvelous has happened. We've been raised with him that we too may live a new life. And what is this new life that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6? It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who's living in me. That Christ became man, but now that he has returned to the Father, Jesus is taking on a new humanity. And the humanity that he's taking on now is ours. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. He is setting us on fire. Do you know that? It says in the story that their eyes were open. I don't know what that means. But I do know that in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays a similar thing for us. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. He didn't just forgive me so that I can go to heaven when I die. He rose again so that he in his living presence now lives within me that I may live this new life. And what is this new life? Paul is saying, open your eyes. Holy Spirit, open their eyes. Let them see what this new life contains because in this new life, we have hope. We have riches, and we have power. And that same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead is the same power that's working in us. Hmm.
funny. I was reading this week and came across this quote by John Rockefeller. <clears throat> and he was talking about the, uh, the secret to getting rich. And he says there's three secrets to getting rich. Go to work early. Stay at work late. Find oil. <laughs> it's so true, isn't it? What is the secret to this new life that Christ has birthed us into, that he's raised us from the dead, he's brought us to life? Well, you know, go to church, yes, all that kind of stuff. Have Christ explode his light within you and set your heart on fire. So what does it look like for us this morning? For us in this community to be like those in Emmaus. Because as soon as Jesus revealed himself to him, he disappeared. And it was the middle of the night. They packed their bags, and they headed back to Jerusalem. Now, you need to understand that when they headed back to Jerusalem, they weren't going back to a safe situation. The disciples were all hiding because they assumed that they were going to be arrested and put to the cross just like Jesus was. They didn't know what they were going. They were going right back into the story that they didn't know how this was going to turn out. It was the middle of the night. They're traveling the roads at night. What would cause them to do that? Back in 1898, there were uh, a group of people that uh, felt that God was calling them to pray because they believed that, that this hope was not something they've got to get. It's something that they have, that they believed that the riches was not something they need to go out and make, but it's something that they have. They believed that the power was not something they needed to go out and earn, but it's something that they would have. If we have Christ, we have those things. And they began to pray that God would open their eyes to see the things that were theirs in Jesus Christ. So on a Saturday night in Chicago, back in 1898, they gathered and they began to pray. Just a couple of them. Saturday night from 9 to 10. <laughs> What were they thinking? Saturday night? Nine o'clock? Nobody's going to come to that. Well, within a short time, the group grew to 300 people. What's going on? 300 people began to gather to believe the hope, the riches, and the power were theirs, and it was time for them to step into it and use them. Three hundred started to step into that journey. Some would even pray until the next morning. Then they began to do something crazy. If Jesus is alive, that we have hope, we have riches, and we have power, we don't want to just sit on these things. We want to spend them. If those are our things to use, we're going to pray for outrageous stuff. They began to pray that God would start a worldwide revival. This one man, his friends called him R.A., began to pray that God would use him in that revival. Well, within a couple of weeks... 
a couple of strangers approached RA and asked him to come with them to Australia. They're in Chicago. This is 1898. Remember, the Titanic sank in 1912, all right? This is no easy thing. This isn't jumping a plane and I'll be back in a week. Will you come with us to Australia and just preach? So he went to his good buddy, Charles, and said, you got to come with me. So the two of them went to Australia. At the very first meeting while they were there, 15,000 people tried to pack together to hear this guy preach. See, the building only held 8,000. And I know that numbers aren't everything. In fact, oftentimes they're a distraction between what God's really doing. But something was happening here. And he began to preach, and God began to set hearts on fire. Jesus was in the crowd turning dead people into live people because back in Chicago, there was a group of people that dared to believe the hope, the riches, the power, we can step into those things. And then a woman who was so touched that first night, she started to gather some people together to pray. And it wasn't 300. After a short time, 1,700 people were gathering to pray that God would bring revival in Australia. And this revival broke out all across Britain and Ireland and other countries. And their prayer was, revive thy work, O Lord. It's estimated that over 100,000 people came into the Lord. And all of this started with just a couple of people in Chicago that dared to believe that what we've been talking about this morning is really true. Isn't that crazy? I started the sermon by saying, if you had all the hope, all the riches, and all the power, what would you do? What would you do? Do you have those things? Because for you, and I want you to hear this, you know, 100,000 people, that's nothing to the Lord. For you, it may be simply going to your next door neighbor and saying, no, I'll mow your grass today. It may be helping that person that just needs your help today. It may be you going and mending a broken relationship that was shattered. It may mean you having to forgive somebody that you haven't been able to forgive or wanted to forgive and you've held on to the bitterness. It may be for you to forgive yourself and believe that God has transformed you into one that is forgiven. Or it may be that God is calling you to something even bigger. Maybe your imagination is bigger than that. See, I really believe that this morning Jesus is alive. And he is sneaking up on us. And when he sneaks up on us and he lets our hearts become aflame, and some of you know what I'm talking about, where it's burning inside of you, and you beg Jesus to stay. Beg him. Stay. And he goes, okay. And he opens our eyes and we go, look at the treasures that are ours in Christ. We too get to live this new life. Then we begin to dream. And our dreams are bigger than a new car. Our dreams are even bigger than this world. Isn't it true? Because he's risen. What are you dreaming about? What would you do? What are you going to do? 
Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, it's a dangerous thing. It is a dangerous thing that you are out of the grave. It is a dangerous thing that you're out stalking people. It is a dangerous thing that you're saying enough of this discouragement on the road to Emmaus. It is a dangerous thing when you say, Emmaus cannot contain you because I have changed you. It is an amazing thing when you call us to be those that know we have the hope, that we have been given the riches of your kingdom and our inheritance in Christ, and you've given us power to dream and to walk. And I just know that right now, Lord, in this room, you're igniting some fires. For some people in this room, it says enough's enough. I'm putting down the sarcasm. I'm putting down the hopelessness. I'm putting down the Emmaus road that even turns good news into bad news. Not only will we embrace you, Lord, but we pray and thank you that you embrace us. Stoke that fire, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.